0: Our U.S. senator, our junior senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley, is now working to stop women from being registered for the draft. There is a bill in Congress that is looks like it was going to go through Congress. You know that draft registration card you fill out when you're 18 if you're right. a male? In this bill, women are supposed to now fill it out as well. And Josh Hawley says no. And him along with Tom Cotton down in Arkansas. And... John, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what's going on here. It seems like a little dated to be uh, saving the women folk from the draft, don't you? Well,
1: it's a, it's an interesting issue. You know, there's there's been a division for many years about women in the service, and I think we've passed that uh, bar. Uh, at this point, and women serve very honorably uh, in our u s military and all branches of the military uh, we 've got female fighter pilots, uh, one of whom was a member of Congress not too long ago so uh, But I think what this is designed to do is that it 's one thing and i'm just i 'm giving you up what I think is senator holly 's rationale it 's one thing for a woman to volunteer to join the armed forces, and it 's another thing to conscript them. Um, and I think that the point he's making is that conscripting women, uh, against their will, uh, which is what a draft is, uh, is not a, a bridge that we should cross as a country. I think that's where he is on this thing.
0: Well, we haven't, we haven't conscripted men against their will in 50 years either. Meanwhile, right. uh, you can look at a country like Israel where everybody serves. They are, they're all conscripted. Yes, mandatory.
1: Right, right. I don't think we want to go there. Uh, In in the U.S., and we have a volunteer military in this country, and uh, it's it's one of the blessings of being an American, that if you choose to serve, uh, we salute you, and we honor you, and we praise you, but no one is forced to serve, and uh, only in a time of of extreme warfare would I think a draft ever be even on the table.
0: And and that's the thing. I think you can look at the situations we've been in for the last 20 years, uh, the way that the modern technology has evolved. Uh, if, if we get involved in a war that requires a draft, uh, who gets drafted is probably the least of our worries, I would, su- I would suggest.
1: Well, and you know, we're not fighting much uh, on the ground any longer. I mean, we certainly have troops stationed across the globe that are ground forces. Uh, but modern warfare, of course, is increasingly uh, uh, technical. Uh, we're seeing a lot an explosion of the use of drones, for example. And so the draft may be an obsolete matter in the first place. And so it's just a, you know, this is a question where Senator Hawley, I think, says that uh, as a nation, we don't need to conscript our females into into the Army in a, in a time of, of duress.
0: It seems like he gets involved in you know, something like this, for example. This just seems like something that is really... A nitpicking waste of time, maybe. I don't it, it seems almost with all the other things that are going on right now and all of the other problems we're facing. This just seems like an unusual one for him to plant his flag on. And then, interestingly enough, uh, with Senator Hawley, it appears he and uh, a couple of other Republican senators uh, dropped off an amicus brief uh, later on in the day asking the Supreme Court not to uh or asking the Supreme court to overturn Roe versus Wade, which would seem to be the bigger story. Is this a a little bit of a sleight of hand here?
1: Well, I think what you're seeing is a, a young Senator who is, has got an eye on, on the white house. And so I think he's trying to craft, um, trying to position himself in such a way that he gets noticed and recognized and talked about, which is what we're doing now. And, um, in, in hopes that he can elevate his uh, his knowledge base among the electorate at, at a higher level than it currently is. And I, I really think it's that simple, George. I think, I think this is a guy that's uh, got, you know, presidential designs, and he's trying to elevate his profile. Yeah, with, it seems like he is elevating his
0: profile on a lot of things that— I mean, I, I realize that the Republican primary voter and the general election voter are— two different things but they are it seems like it seems to me like he's jumping onto the crazy train whenever he can
1: well i mean you know crazy's in the eyes of the beholder i suppose uh but i mean he certainly is uh, attempting to appeal to the the more conservative elements of the republican electorate the base of the party if you will um and not necessarily a, a dumb strategy at all if you're if you're looking at the white house now if you're you're trying to govern, if you're trying to be a a senator who is effective and and builds coalitions and passes legislation, well, you wouldn't be doing these things. Uh, But, you know, I think Josh Hawley is he's got a legitimate chance to be the Republican nominee in 2024 or later. He's quite young. And, uh, you know, I understand politically why he's doing what he's doing, and it may work out for him.
0: Do you think this uh, amicus brief about Roe versus Wade that it was filed uh, today, do you think that this is something that that does anything, or are we just making noise here also?
1: Well, amicus briefs are just a mechanism to allow individuals or groups of individuals to express an opinion about a pending case before the court. I don't know that the justices give them much weight. But it's an opportunity for people to express, and in this case, Josh is expressing that he is uh, in solidarity with those who would like to see abortion repealed in the country. And that's another part of the, the gop base vote. And I think it's of the same, same kind of strategic mind that informed the, the females in the draft.
0: Do you, as a Republican guy, do yeah. you worry that too much of this— takes things too far, and sends a candidate like Senator Hawley so far off to the right that, whether it's a splitting of the party or whatever, that he can't win?
1: Well, it was just five years ago that we elected Donald Trump. so. Um,
0: and there are a lot of people who weren't happy about that, and it, sure, uh, I think it showed up in this election.
1: And of course, and there's a lot of people that were, and... and You know, the whole trick in in becoming a party's nominee for president or really any office is you've got to you've got to have an appeal to the base voter such that you you can prevail in a primary and and go on to be the nominee. And then you've got to be able to uh, put together a a winning coalition amongst the general electorate. And that's a that's a tricky walk. And and many politicians have failed uh, to execute both sides of that equation. It remains to be seen. Uh, If Senator Holly can can do something like that.
0: All right. Well, John Hancock, thank you, as always, for taking a few minutes to sort through these things. We appreciate your time this evening and uh, we'll catch you sooner rather than later.
1: Thanks, George. And I did want to be clear. I do not now or nor have I ever worked for Josh Holley.
0: That that is put out there. You hear that he's not associated with it. We're just analyzing. Thanks, John. You bet. 10-18 10:18 on a Monday night. KMOX is at your service. I'm George Sells in the spot where you would normally be listening to your St. Louis Cardinals. Cue the segue. The St. Louis Cardinals, who tomorrow night and the following afternoon will be playing for the very last time, barring a meeting in the World Series, the Cleveland Indians. And you're saying to yourself, what do you mean? They're never going to play Cleveland again? Oh, they'll play Cleveland again at some point. But it won't be the Cleveland Indians. It will be the Cleveland Guardians. This is one of the last, I guess, really the last major pro sports team in the United States that was holding on to a Native American moniker, uh, despite lots of pressure over the years. And they announced last week that they are going to change the name, change the slogan, change the whole thing. And joined now by KMOX Sports' own Kevin Wheeler, who... Follows this stuff the way I do and probably gets a little bit nerdy about it the way I do. <laughs> to Talk about it, Kevin. Thanks for coming in, coming on so late.
2: Yeah, that's a that's an accurate description. And this is not late for me, by the way. This is right around when the games end, and that means pregame starts, which means you know I'm up for another three or four hours. <laughs> oh, cool. I'll be- so I'm a late night guy, man. You never have to worry about ten o'clock at night. That's like that's like dinner time for me.
0: <laughs> well, tell me, were you? Stepping back to the 30,000-foot level, Mm -hmm. uh, I was shocked last year when Daniel Snyder finally just gave in out of nowhere and took Redskins off of the Washington football team. Uh, And then this one, I know that they've been in the process of working to do the same thing, but uh, it just sort of popped up out of the blue. Right. Were you surprised how this last year has played out that these names – uh, after years and years of controversy, have fallen.
2: Not really surprised. I mean, look the the, the tide has been pushing in this direction for a number of years. Um, I think sometimes that tide goes over the top, and I'll explain what I mean about that in a second. But let's let's take a look at uh, especially the, the the Washington football team situation for a second. You notice that Daniel Snyder didn't cave on that until his team was being investigated for a horrible front office environment that included se- sexual harassment and poor treatment of cheerleaders and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that not long after that popped up, he caved, which tells me he was pressured and he knows that he was in no spot to fight back.
0: Yeah, FedEx um, was about to bail on him too as yes. a sponsor.
2: Yeah, they well Fed, yeah, Fred Smith is this is the CEO of FedEx. He's one of the he was one of the the minority owners of the Redskins now the football team and you know, he was getting internal pressure as well. So a lot of things happened there that changed his position. Um, the Indians thing is not as complex as that, um, but they did announce not that long ago they were going to change it. And I think, I think, George, what we have to do is, is I know this is really difficult and uh, damn near asking too much of people in the year 2021 to, 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 to think with some nuance here. And understand that each of these situations is different. And I don't just mean each of these two. I mean each of these situations with Native American-themed teams. Um, you know, Redskins, not an honorary term. Not something like Chiefs. Not something like Braves. Not something like Seminoles or Illini that that honor a specific tribe, right? Right. It, 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 was, it was at best slang. At best and at worst, it was used as um, a racial epithet. Now there are people that tell you that it wasn't always meant that way. That's fine. I don't care that it wasn't always meant that way. There were people that used it that way.
0: And, and, this, and in this day and age, it was definitely enough to get you punched in the in the mouth and in the, in the right bar on the right uh, reservation just out west.
2: It's just. It's also. It's 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 even if you do, even if you don't want to concede that you think it's racist, you have to admit it's disrespectful. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it, it it just is. And and by the way. Kind of pointless as a team nickname, which, which brings me to the Cleveland thing. Uh, Indians was a stupid name to begin with, and I don't <laughs> understand why anybody would be mad because, because it's based on a mistake. Right, It's based on a 600-year-old mistake, a mistake in the 15th century where people thought they had landed in the Indies, the islands, and they actually were landing in America. They, like The explorers were wrong. They made a mistake and they referred to the native people as Indians because they thought they were in the East Indies. Well, they were not. <laughs> and I don't know why people have been attached to that for so long. I don't know why it's 2021, and we still don't go, oh, yeah, you know, that was kind of stupid. Let's not use that dumb name because it's not accurate.
0: Well, they don't um, teach it in school anymore. They... No,
2: and look, it, it, <laughs> and it was never right. I mean, it, yeah. and again, it's not always used negatively, right? I mean, some hmm. people just use it. Um, you know, neutrally, if you will, like at the same way you would say Native American. The pe- a lot of people don't mean anything bad by using that term. Um, so th- those two situations are a little different, but I don't think we need to make noise about that. I, I think these are easy, simple changes. It's not that big of a deal. And now, now I-, I do think that some of the protests that have come up around other teams. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it with the Chiefs, right? Right. But the the, the term chief is an- is an honorary term.
0: And, I, and it is, and you're I think the, you're that, the
2: man in charge, right? I mean, right.
0: But it, but at the same time, I think you I think you hear more. Really, I think in a way, but the Chiefs and the Braves also. I think you hear more complaint about the uh, you know upper middle class. White folk in the hundred dollar seats doing the tomahawk. Yes. Top, oh, believe then, me. Yeah, I'm you with you do. on
2: that. I think the tomahawk chocks the chocks the dumbest thing in the world. It
0: needs to go away.
2: It does. And and I don't just say that because I went to Miami and I can't stand Florida State. <laughs> uh, I, it's not bias. I I really do think that that's kind of infantile and childish. And I'm sorry, Chiefs fans, if that makes you mad. I'm sorry, but I mean, it, it, there are other ways. That you can show your allegiance to your team. There are other ways that you can get under the skin of the opposing team, um, and that—that's—and that was kind of my next point, George. I think it's important to note too. Again, the nuance: the name may not be a problem, but in some cases, the imagery can be, right? Mm-hmm. If, yep. if it's not done respectfully, if it's not done with the input of the Native American tribe, like for, I know. For example, I mentioned Florida State a lot because I'm very familiar with their situation, having been a rival of theirs. And the Seminole tribe there is perfectly fine with the association. You know, they, it's the it's tribe that's from that part of the country, and there's nothing disrespectful about it. There may be some things that they've done in the past that they probably shouldn't do as far as maybe playing into stereotypes, right? And I think that's the worry that some people have. But the name itself is not offensive. The name itself is not – nothing is being done to demean, diminish, mock in any way any of those Native American populations, and I think we can differentiate between all of these things. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a black or white thing, even though the world of social media wants everything to be black or white, yes or no, good or bad.
0: Well, you made the very good point about being able to look at these different things with nuance. And I guess my question is you know, bringing it back locally – uh, you you mentioned the Chiefs, and yeah, we I think we're we've laid out very very clearly the nuance and the fact that it is meant respectfully and that sort of thing. But because the world of social media and sound bites wants things to be so clear, I ask you: Do you think that there's any chance that the Chiefs' name is on the block?
2: I mean, there's a chance. I I wouldn't expect it. Um... I mean, I guess you never really know, right? I mean, right. you you could look at it ten years down the road, and maybe, um, uh, maybe. But I I also haven't heard the amount of criticism for Chiefs as I have for Indians and Redskins. Um, now maybe that'll change <laughs> now that the other two have toppled, right? Now that the the two that were probably, you know, the Redskins one was considered the most offensive, right? The Indians one was offensive in different ways, right? I mean, it's again, it's kind of insulting to everybody's intelligence. It's it's you know and i and i do think that one of the big problems with the cleveland team was the use of chief wahoo right yes. and again the name chief wahoo first and foremost is also really stupid and offensive and the imagery was terrible and i think you know if if everything is being done respectfully i don't think there's going to be a lot of complaining but there could be if you continue on with things like the tomahawk chop if you continue on with some of the symbolism that is very stereotypical that is you know kind of and again, I you know I understand that people don't have to intend offense to offend, right? right? I think that's another thing we have to get past. You can say I don't mean it that way. It doesn't matter. It's it's how something is received. So George, I mean, you know, if, if for example, if you greet a friend, and you know, my friends and I work kind of mean to each other, right? We call each other names. We pick on each other a little bit. And some of the things that I can say to my friend, I can't just say to a random person on the street. Absolutely. If I, if I do, they're probably going to want to fight me. <laughs> right? So we do have to understand that our intent is not always what matters. It's the result of the words that matter. And we can use all kinds of other uh, more serious topics and precedents to talk about that. You may not intend to, for example, cause an accident, but you're still responsible for what happens.
0: Right. And you do have the situation now where you've still got the the diehard fans of these various teams that are yeah. that are never going to let it go, but I and I guess maybe the one thing that we are seeing, and you talk about, some will some will be critical of it, saying that oh, we everybody's getting soft. I like to think of it as oh, everybody's getting maybe a little bit smarter, a little more empathetic, uh, those sorts of things, but. Uh, it seems like the, the diehards and, the, and yeah. the real loud antis, you know, the, the Daniel Snyder digging his feet in mm-hmm. uh, and the fans who supported that, they seem to have they seem to have shrunk in, in the size of their groups. And I think that that they're at least making less noise.
2: Yeah, well, here's are there are two parts to this to me. Number one, nobody's forcing anybody to call a team anything. Right. If you're a fan of the Cleveland baseball team and you want to call them the Indians, you can you can refer to them that way in your normal conversation. You can refer to them that way when you're talking to your buddies. You can—I mean, it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want, and people do this like they complain about you know corporate stadium names, right? Well, then don't call it that. Right. People do that with bowl games. I do that with bowl games. I don't—I don't always say the full sponsored name. I just say the Rose Bowl. Or yeah, I it's say not the Orange FedEx bowl.
0: Orange Bowl to you. Come on now, Kevin. I, mean, I mean?
2: again, <laughs> if I'm on the air and I'm reading it, I might do it that way, but. In regular talk, I'm not going to. So again, that's partly like so. There's nobody forcing you to say it any other way, you know. If you're just if you're just a fan, right now again, different for somebody like me in the media. I would you know I'm going to have to you know especially like say for you know doing the Cardinals, I'm I, I'm going to refer to the ballpark by its name. Now of course the name of it is a traditional name and a corporate sponsor name, right? right. Like Busch Stadium serves two purposes, given the history of the franchise, but. Now, let's just use the Blues as an example. When when Scott Trade Center changed to Enterprise Center, you know all of us changed because you know you you work around the team. You do it because it's it's a it's professional to do it the right way. It's professional, but nobody's going to make a fan call those arenas anything that they don't want to. You can refer to it by any means you want, and you can call the team whatever you want. So that's part of it. And then the other part is, I've never understood this, but the people that say ah the world's getting soft. So what's softer? making a change that might actually be beneficial to some group of people or being super angry that you can't call a team what you want to call the team, <laughs> exactly. which is softer because let's be honest, it doesn't matter what the team name is. I root for the team that I root for because it represents the city that I live in or right. the city that I grew up in or whatever. You know, We all, we all understand that. Nobody j- j- becomes a fan because you and you're like 10 years old. You're like, that's the coolest team name ever. No, it's because the team's good or it's because it's where you're from or because it's the team your dad followed. And I and I think that n- none of that changes if you change the name of the team.
0: And probably the best part of the video making the announcement of this uh, out of Cleveland was where they said we always thought the best part of the name was Cleveland anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, really that's what matters, right? I mean, and it's funny because, you know, we get caught up in the in the team nicknames and everything here, but you know, and a lot of the with a lot of the European soccer clubs, they don't. You know, it's not the Manchester United. You know, not it's not Manchester United. I don't know what would their nickname well be. Redcoats or... Red or whatever. <laughs> like it's not that. It's just Man U, right? right? And they might the fans have their own nicknames for the teams, right? right. They're, but they're just nicknames. They're not official names of the team. And for whatever reason here, we've decided to go a different route. We did a long time ago, and I get it. It's tradition now. You're used to it. Fine, cool, whatever but you can call the teams whatever you want to. <laughs> you, you don't have to ever, ref- in your private life, wherever you-, you can refer to them any way you want, and that's all that matters.
0: All righty. Kevin Willer, thank you so much for staying up with us, and uh, we'll be listening to you tomorrow uh, talking about the events that I believe it's Progressive Field. <laughs> yeah, I
2: think it is now. Yeah, I think that's right.
0: A final run of the Cleveland Indians. Kevin Willer, thank you. You got it, George. Camel X News Time, 1032. And we are back, X, at your service on a Monday night, a Monday night in late July. We're getting into August, still vacation time, which means everybody needs a good beach book or some kind of book to say take some time somewhere and get into. And joining me now is a guy who's written 20 of them, Brad Thor, author of Black Ice. It's just out. Brad, a thriller on our hands and a thrill to have you here on X. Well,
3: it's my pleasure to be with
0: you. Thanks for having me. Well, your books... Let's just get this out of the way right now. I'm assuming that you had plenty of John le Carré and uh, Tom Clancy on your shelf uh, as a younger man before you got into writing. I did.
3: Those were actually my parents' books, and when they would finish reading them, I would take them. And I probably started too young reading them. I should have stayed with the Hardy Boys a little longer, but uh, you, you nailed it. Those were my influences.
0: And tell me about how you come up with some of these. Like the, the This one, Black Ice We're starting in Oslo on a fjord, a little city cafe, a little commute going on. How do you find this stuff to begin with as far as these concepts and how much time do you spend traveling around the world so you can figure out how to get the places right?
3: Well, Stephen King once said that a writer is someone who's trained their mind to misbehave, and I really do believe that. Uh, I'm constantly looking at things and saying, what if this? What if that? I did a thriller called State of the Union, and the premise was, what if we didn't really win the Cold War? What if uh, the Soviet Union just pretended to lose it, and what might that pretend for the United States? So I do a lot of these things that are kind of fun, and they're great to play out spy tales against, and for, uh, for Black Ice... I've got America's top spy is having an awesome summer with his uh, new girlfriend who works for the Norwegian Intelligence Service, but he's out of vacation days, out of sick days, and his office calls from D.C., and they say, we want you back by Monday or turn in your resignation. And so he wants to go back. He loves his job, loves his country, uh, is planning to go back to D.C., but as he leaves his favorite cafe in Oslo, he sees a ghost get out of a taxi cab a man he killed years ago, halfway around the world. And that begins the chase from Oslo all the way up into the Arctic. So I went to Norway, did research for the book, was going to go back to do the Arctic research, and COVID hit. And everything got closed down, particularly this archipelago that I wanted to go to that's about 500 miles north of Norway, halfway between Norway and the North Pole. So what I did was I've got a good network of spies and special operations people, people at the State Department, and I was able to network into some people who had actually been up in that part of the world there aren't a lot but found them and talked to them and was able to get some really good color details to uh, contribute to the plot of black ice
0: that's got to be a challenge over the years developing all these sources who can give you an inside look at some place that most of us will never get a chance to go
3: yeah, I buy a lot of pitchers of beer and a lot of steak dinners, so uh, that's it's kind of a you know it's in these social situations, George, where people let their guards down a little bit and talk to you. Now, granted, I'm not getting information I'm not supposed to get. Nobody's violating uh, any national security uh, non-disclosure agreements or anything like that. So it's 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 totally above board, and I let them see the book before it goes to my publisher. And what's funny is I've had people in the past say, "Well, Brad, we told." you point a we told you point c but point b has got to come out of the book i'm like well you didn't say point b they're like you're darn right and you need to get it out of the book so i'll you know i'll massage it or get it to the point where they're comfortable with it but sometimes i figure stuff out just on my own and they'll never admit it they'll just say that thing out of the book
0: so you were you were going to go to norway for this you did go to norway for this one you've been to other places for your other books i'm sure does it get to a point that you just sit around and go okay vacation next summer (laughs) <laughs> Haven't been to Sweden before. We'll do a book about that.
3: Well, it, it, it's interesting because my life before becoming an author, I was in travel, uh, travel journalism. I had a, a show na- nationwide on public television called Traveling Light. I thought travel made me a better American. So I was trying to encourage young people, 18 to 34, get a rail pass, get a backpack, go see the world a little bit now. Don't wait until you're retired. And on my honeymoon, my wife asked me, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a book and getting it published. I'd always wanted to be an author since I was a little boy. And she said, okay, when we get home, you need to start spending two hours a day, protected time, and make that dream come true. And that's what changed me from having a TV show on public television to becoming a thriller
0: author. Okay, I'm going to ask a really broad question here, but I want to see what, see what you say. What is the most difficult thing about writing a novel?
3: Uh, I'll tell you, it's... this. this the self-discipline, even down to quieting your own mind, it really is tough because it's such a – the actual words on paper is very solitary. The research is great. I get to talk to lots of people. But I'm a perfectionist at heart. My dad was a United States Marine. My mom was a flight attendant for TWA. I grew up in Chicago. So I have these good Midwestern values, and I was taught you know, always show up – as if it's your first day of work and work so hard that it won't be your last day of work you know give it your all so i'm a perfectionist i'm constantly trying to raise the bar so that that's really the issue with me could this sentence be written better you can get in that loop if you're not careful as an author and that kind of sense of perfectionism is what can contribute to writer's block. And the best piece of advice I ever heard about writer's block was give yourself permission to write a crummy first draft. It takes the pressure off. And if you have any talent at all, you're not going to write a crummy first draft. It's going to be pretty darn good. But you can't edit what hasn't been written. You've got to get those words on paper.
0: Now, we talked about the thriller vein, the uh, Tom Clancy's of the world. And they had it easy. They had a Cold War sitting there waiting for them to fill in storylines and characters, you don't have that. How have you managed over the years to deal with, I guess, trying to predict what's gonna happen next in a, a pretty crazy world?
3: It's a good question. So I call what I do faction, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. And I'm a voracious consumer of the news. And uh, like I said, I like to take things and say, what if? In fact, that drew the attention of the Department of Homeland Security, who invited me to join something called the Analytic Red Cell Unit uh, very soon after 9-11 when DHS got stood up. And the idea was... Boy, America got hit by al-Qaeda, and it was successful because of a failure of imagination on our part. So uh, the government invited in creative thinkers like me, Michael Bay, the director of the Transformers movies, uh, and said, we need you guys to help us stay four to five steps ahead of the bad guys. Help us think up plots and things like that. I jokingly refer to it as the Las Vegas of government programs because what happens in the red cell stays in the red cell. I can't use any of that stuff for my thrillers, but I get to—you know—it was an incredible honor being the son of a marine to be asked to serve my country, not by picking up a rifle like my dad did, but by using the gray matter between my ears. So I, I guess it's it, it is a, it is kind of a gentle affliction. I, I joke being uh, being creative because uh, I've constantly got ideas banging around in my head. But the bad guys, you're right. You know, we went through the 9/11 period, and everybody was writing about t- terrorists and things like this. Uh, you do have to get creative. You do have to look for threats, and I I like people to not. Um, uh, to not be able to put my books down, I want you to have a great white-knuckle thrill ride. If, if you do, I've done my job as an entertainer. But if you close a Brad Thor novel a little bit smarter, maybe about a different part of the world or how the Navy SEALs work or stuff at the CIA, just a little bit of knowledge that you didn't even know you were getting reading this real fast page-turner, then I've done my job as an American.
0: All righty. Well, the book, the latest in the series is Black Ice. The author is Brad Thor. You can pick the book up wherever you buy your books. And Brad, we thank you for joining us on X.
3: It was my pleasure, George. Thanks for having me.
0: And you got to love that idea of traveling around the world to research your topic. I may have to rethink what I'm doing with my life. news Time is 1046. the stretch they come, 10.50 on a Monday night. KMOX at your service. I'm George Sells. Wrapping things up with you, lots going on. It's been a great night. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. Uh, Wrap things up with one more thing that's sort of sports-related, and uh, it's kind of a a tip of the cap that I think we all owe to the folks who have been running things over the last 10 years or so at the University of Missouri. And this is just about somebody at the time reading the tea leaves when they really needed to be read. And what I'm talking about is the decision that Mizzou made now, some 10 years ago, to join the Southeastern Conference. Uh, you may well recall at the time it caught a lot of people off guard, it seemed kind of disjointed. I mean, you know, what about Mizzou is southeast. It just it doesn't exactly feel like, you know, boiled peanuts and the things you'll find on a on a back road outside of Athens, Georgia. But they made the move. It was money motivated. But I mean, what isn't money motivated in in big time sports anymore? College pro whatever the Olympics, you know, the amateur dream of the Olympics. I mean, tell me that's not all about the money anyway. They made the decision in the way they went for it. And the reason to take notice of it today is because today is the day that going back to the old Big 12 where Mizzou used to be, the universities of Texas and Oklahoma essentially turned in their resignation. There were reports this was coming a couple of days ago, but they they officially sent the paperwork today saying we're not coming back when our when our time in this conference retires. And what we are going to see now is essentially the implosion of one of the storied athletic conferences in this nation. I mean, Midwestern sports, it was the old Big 8 and it was the Big 10. And the old Big 8, now the Big 12, uh, almost certainly is going to disappear because its two strongest members are, are leaving. I mean, the University of Texas is a powerhouse financially. They have their own TV network, for crying out loud. Oklahoma, also a big national name. And now what it looks like is they're going to be heading for the SEC. A little reunion with Mizzou and Texas A&M that supposedly uh, some folks are not real happy about on either one of those campuses. But at the end of the day, there are a couple of things that you can take note of. First of all, going back to the financial portions of all this that always play a major role though, they're going to make more money. But the bigger deal is this. When Mizzou left the big 12, a big part of the reason they left is they felt like they were always being treated as kind of the, the redhead stepchild of the group. Uh, The big 12 was Texas, Oklahoma and everybody else. They made all the rules. They decided who got how much money when Uh, Texas and Oklahoma got more money than Mizzou and, say, Baylor or Texas Tech or some of those other schools, or Texas A&M for that matter. So they were a second-class citizen, and they made a very bold decision to make the move to the SEC all those years ago when a lot of people thought they were nuts and a lot of people thought they would fail. Well, here we are in 2021 they haven't failed they have been competitive football of course being the big sport but you can go across also uh, across baseball across basketball they've been competitive they haven't won the league but they've been they've been there they achieved a much greater standing as far as the SEC is much better about everybody kind of equally distributing things so they made the the absolute right financial decision and now You think about the position they would be in if they were still in the Big 12. Because what this is, is a good old case of musical chairs. The music is about to stop playing, and where are you going to be when the music stops? The good news for Mizzou is they have a nice comfy seat that they're already well placed in. And the big boys who used to look down their nose at them in Norman and Austin, they're the ones wondering, where am I going to land? They probably know. They're kind of the biggies, but not a good night if you're a Texas Tech, Baylor, Oklahoma State fan, or something along those lines. 1055, I'm George Sells. This has been Camo X at your service. Have a great night.